the reading of the scriptures as found in Isaiah chapter 46, uh, reading verses 8 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far off from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. It's sometimes very common in the life of the church that uh, we become confused about uh, the nature of uh, our redemption. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's one of the reasons there are so many different denominations. Uh, Everybody arguing about the nature of our redemption. Who does it? How does it come to pass? Uh, What part do I play? All of those are great questions. Uh, I would uh, commend to you something of the reality that the prophet Isaiah speaks to us about that. Uh, in our text uh, this morning. Uh, And it is a good reminder that we as Christians should not be confused about our Redeemer and about the application of our redemption in light of the work of our Redeemer. Uh, Our text this morning uh, begins, uh, Isaiah 46, uh, chapter 8, with a couple of imperatives. Uh, The first, uh, remember, uh, he's provoking Uh, the nation to remember uh, the content, of course, of that will soon follow. Uh, Then he says uh, to take courage, uh, literally be firm, uh, that uh, the Church of Christ ought to have a measure of courage, of firmness in its understanding. And then again, uh, the third imperative, re-engage your mind. Interesting thought. The the Hebrew text is literally your heart, uh, but measure of the mind, uh, reference to the uh, inner being. Uh, I am certainly reminded oftentimes uh, I hear Christians say something to the effect that there's head knowledge and heart knowledge. There's really no such dichotomy in the scripture. Uh, We are to engage our minds, and that, of course, is a principal aspect of understanding uh, who our Redeemer is and uh, how redemption is accomplished. Uh, There's an illustration of this uh, aspect of confusion that the prophet is engaging in the book of James. Uh, James uh, chapter 1 and verse 8 speaks to an individual that's confused about his faith. Uh, And James says in the first chapter, uh, in the eighth verse, he describes a man 
who is double-minded and stable in all of his ways. Uh, the context is uh, a prayer, uh, more particularly the prayer of a man that God will not answer because he has divided loyalties. He is confused about uh, redemption and its application. Uh, James describes him as double-minded. Literally, the text uh, is he has two souls. Uh, reminded to us, we ought not to be double-minded or confused about who our Redeemer is and the application of our redemption. James then uses a nautical simile to describe him. He says he's like the waves of the sea, uh, conveying his instability and unpredictability. And I would simply remind you from the book of James, as well as from the prophet Isaiah, that if you are confused about who your Redeemer is, and you are confused about how he accomplishes your redemption, you will eventually develop uh, a schizophrenia respecting your salvation. You'll have two minds, you'll be unstable and eventually unpredictable. Uh, so our initial readers in that vein are recovering from uh, the effects of idolatry. They're confused about who God is. If you worship an idol in God, you are certainly uh, confused uh, and given over to misunderstanding. Uh, Isaiah, of course, is confronting them about their idolatry and calling them to remember God, who he is, and what he does. Uh, I suspect uh, on occasion we're confused as well. There's no doubt in my mind with the uh, incredible number of uh, denominations that there's great confusion in the Christian church. Uh, it is not a pretty picture. We ought not to be confused. And so Isaiah uh, comes back at the people. He comes back at us again in verse 9 with another imperative just like he started. He says, remember, remember. And the content of what he commands them to remember is twofold. Uh, first, he says, remember the former things. It is a reference to the history and continuity of redemption, namely that God delivers and history proves it. Uh, we might uh, ask ourselves, how has he done that to the children of Israel? Well, uh, we could mention the name Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, for the church, we could, of course, remember solely and entirely the name of Jesus, our deliverer, and the nature of his deliverance. He's calling upon the nation to remember that God is faithful. Uh, I remind people all of the time that faithfulness and God go together. But we need to understand who God is and how he is faithful to us. What he has done, he will do again. It's exactly what the prophet is telling the children of Israel in their double-minded estate. He's trying to purge them of their idolatry. He's trying, I think, in a measure to purge us of our confusion, to set our minds right, to think properly about God, what he does, and how he does it. What else are they to remember? Secondly, uh, the content uh, in verse 9 is the nature of God. The nature of God. Uh, look at your text. For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. That God is totally and incomparably unique. There is no other and there is no other like him. All are excluded 
save the God of Scripture. There is one God, and we should have one mind about him. We should think God's thoughts after him, and those thoughts are captured for us in the word of God so that we would understand our faith, who God is, and what he has done for us. God says, I am the same God who saved of old, and what I did of old I can do again. The specifics of the uniqueness of God are found in verses 10 and 11. Again, I would remind you that God is embracing for us the application of redemption. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 10 and 11, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, truly I will do it. Those are difficult verses if you think about it in terms of the application of our redemption. In the text, there are pre, three participles that are descriptive of God. The text says that God is declaring, saying, and calling. Declaring. What does God declare? That God decrees the end from the beginning. You and I know this as a figure of speech. The technical word is a merism in which two extremes are deposited, in this case, the end from the beginning. But the point of the figure of speech is that he means everything in between. From start to finish, God declares absolutely, unequivocally, everything. There is nothing that he has not declared. It means that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in between the two extremes of the beginning and the end. It's a good reminder to us in the simple word of sovereignty. Uh, with respect to the scripture, God doesn't just hold a title. He's not just ruler, but he rules over everything. And his rule encompasses everything, namely the end from the beginning and everything, everything in between. The events from the entire span of time from start to finish are under the sovereign control of the God of Scripture, of the God of the church, of the God of the prophet Isaiah, of the God that you and I have come uh, to worship this morning. That he declares from start what is going to occur. He predicts everything. And his predictions are certain because he is in command of everything and absolutely no one and nothing can prevent him or stop him from getting his way. I suspect that's one of the reasons there are so many denominations in America. Because God is everything. He's first and foremost. It means that his will is supreme. It kind of grates on us as Americans because we believe in the democratic process, and I think in some manner or form, we think that God needs my vote. And uh, today I'll vote for him, and tomorrow we'll see how it goes. If he gives me enough promises, I'll vote for him. If he takes something away, I won't. Well, that's the folly of the nation of Israel. That's one of the reasons they have dabbled uh, with idolatry. 
And so the prophet is setting them right about who God is and what he has done. And what has he done with respect to our deliverance? We now know everything. Nothing is left that he hasn't spoken, predicted, decreed, and therefore it will certainly be accomplished. The second participle, verse 10, is saying. What is God saying? Again, look at the content of what is said about God, verse 10. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my pleasure. In eternity past, God decreed all things, and because he is God, the outcome is guaranteed. If you think about it, if that statement is not true, if the scriptures are wrong, if Isaiah got it wrong, then God is not God. I mean, he may be Santa Claus, he may be a good person, but he's not God. And again, the prophet is commanding us to remember who God is and what he has done, and what ought we to remember about God, that his purposes are going to be established. If it were any other way, he would not be God. It is a majestic description of the God that we worship and serve. I would tell you by way of application, it ought to purify our worship and service because it means that God is in total control. Nothing is outside of his control and thank God that is the case because everything is accomplishing his purposes, that he gets what he wants. In terms of God, there are no cancellations, no false starts, no mulligans, no mistakes, no do-overs, because whatever God does is right for the supremacy and majesty of his glory. Those are majestic words. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. His purposes will be established and accomplished. No, none of us could utter such a statement. Only God can because of who he is. The supremacy of the God that we worship accomplishes all of his good pleasure. The mind of God is determinative, decisive, and unalterable. His predictions are infallible because he controls everything. The last part of simple verse 11 is calling. Uh, who does he call? In the case of the children of Israel, he's going to call Cyrus. He's going to call him into existence. He's going to shape him as a warrior and set him to do his will, namely to invade Babylon and to set his people free. That God is acting again in a new and greater exodus. Babylon is like Pharaoh. God's going to sweep him aside, recover his people, and return them to the land. It's all purposeful. The, the final verse respecting Cyrus, but it really goes way beyond Cyrus to our own Redeemer in Jesus Christ. Four verbs, again, speaking to the majesty of God. Verse 11. I have spoken, I'll bring it to pass, I've planned it, I will do it. Again, uh, only a majestic God could utter uh, such certainty. I mean, think about it in this way. You and I 
plan lots of things in our, in our lives. Uh, we sometimes set our plans in motion. Uh, we sometimes resource our plans and maybe we run out of resources or maybe the plan fizzles. Not true with God. He speaks and calls everything into existence. He plans and determines everything. He has all of the resources of the world and eternity. And what he wants, he gets. I love the final verb, I will do it. Uh, for the immediate audience, it's the coming of Cyrus. It's going to be accomplished. Babylon will be swept aside. Persia will become the next uh, preeminent uh, nation state to rule but all under the sovereign majesty of the greatness of the God of Scripture, of the prophet, and the God of the church. I understand these verses are, <laughs> are uh, perhaps confusing to some, but I think in the simplicity of it to me is that God is the only true sovereign. And understanding that, has a way of purifying, or should purify our worship. Uh, it not only purifies our worship, it purifies our service to him. Uh, when people lose their understanding of God, they're going to eventually lose their way and become like the man described in James chapter 1 and verse 8. They develop two minds, and they become like the waves of the sea, blowing this way and then that, and again, eventually coming to no end. That's the point of the prophet Isaiah embracing Israel to understand who their God is. Uh, for us, uh, understanding who God is to us in Jesus Christ and the majesty of his sovereignty. Not just a position, but the doing of everything that he wants. You know, one of my favorite illustrations is Queen of England. She's sovereign, but she's really not. Parliament has the true power, but none of that is true of God. He doesn't have a parliament. He doesn't have to go seek permission. He doesn't have to say, Mother, may I, because of who he is. The majesty of the sovereignty of God. He plans, he purposes, and he gets what he wants, and he does what he wants every time, all the time, and there is no time whatsoever that that cannot be said of the majesty of the God that we worship, namely the God of the prophet Isaiah, the God of Scripture. And that theology ought to purify our worship of God and our service of God in light of who he is. It's all purposeful. Four great verbs speaking of the majesty of God. He speaks, he brings it to pass, he plans it, and he does it. The will of God and the doing of God are fused in a seamless and eternal continuity of salvation. In the case of the children of Israel, it's Cyrus. For us, it's Jesus Christ. Cyrus is no accident. Deliverance is a certainty. It's a measure of this, I think, in the Psalter, Psalm 34 reminding us of who God is and what he does for his people. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Because he is sovereign. And deliverance 
and God go together. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Redemption and God go together, and they break majestically in a seamless, continuous salvation for his people, whether it be Israel or the church. Again, I think the prophet is calling upon the nation to clarify their understanding of who God is, to remember him, who he is, and what he has done. And so, verses 8 to 11, that God has a deliverer. And then in verses 12 and 13, we transition to the end state of what the deliverer is going to accomplish. Isaiah commands again, listen to me. Interesting, is it not? We begin the text with remember. Remember who? Remember God. And now we're going to close uh, this section of the prophet with another command. Listen. Listen to me. Again, the people are described as influenced by idolatry. They've got two minds. One day they're for God, the next day they're for whatever idol that captures their fancy. The prophet is seeking clarity. Rather, God is seeking their clarity and understanding about who he is. That God will give salvation in Zion and beauty for Israel. And so the end state is sealed. Historically, we know that the nation of Israel returns from the Babylonian captivity back to the nation. But it anticipates, as you might well imagine or should imagine, a greater deliverance and a greater deliverer who is Christ. I think in that respect, Cyrus is a type of deliverance affected by Christ. But he is a greater deliverer because he comes first to deal with sin. And he inaugurates the kingdom in this way, the dealing of God with sin upon the cross. Furthermore, because of what he has done, he is the last great final deliverer. To give an illustration of this from uh, the book of the Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. There is a book that is mentioned. Uh, it is a book that is a reference to God's plan of judgment and redemption. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it means that in that sense, salvation seemingly to John is forever suspended. There is no hope. Uh, but then he begins to weep, and, and in his uh, weeping, uh, he is profoundly saddened because no one is worthy. And then an angel uh, 
comes, one of the elders says to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root that David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. That Jesus as Messiah is the one who opens the seals and begins the last great final fulfillment of all the acts of redemption and judgment. And heaven responds accordingly. It begins to worship the Lamb, attesting to the worthiness of God. The worship of heaven of the Lord Jesus means, of course, that he is God. He has all of the perfections of divinity. It's all of the attributes of divinity. Even, even Jesus is sovereign, the majesty of the sovereign Lord. And furthermore, he is identified with the eternal purposes of God as the sole divine agent to effect redemption. In the case of Israel, it was Cyrus, and now it's forever completed in the majesty of Christ who will effect redemption. In that sense, there is no other redeemer. There is no better redeemer. There is no greater redeemer, and there's no comparison. He is the only last final redeemer of the people of God. There's one only, and it is the Lord Jesus. He is the deliverer. And the end state, of course, is far, far greater than the end state of Israel returning to, Bab turning to the land of Israel and their forefathers from Babylon. It's a great illustration that is part of Isaiah chapter 40, verses, uh, chapter 40 to chapter 66. God reduplicating what he did with the children of Israel in Egypt. But now he's going to reduplicate it in a greater exodus. And for us, an even greater exodus still in the Lord Jesus. The last great final exodus as we are on our way to heaven in light of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. But like Israel... We must remember that God is sovereign in the application of redemption, including election and reprobation, that God has planned everything, and Jesus Christ is going to accomplish it. Every aspect of salvation, or non-salvation for that matter, is part of the determinative plan of God that will, of course, be accomplished in light of who God is. I think these verses are written to purify our understanding of the majesty of God and therefore affect a purification in our worship and service of God. There's something of this, I think, the language and the theology of the prophet Isaiah in the Apostle Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1 begins to pick up some of the language of Isaiah chapter 46. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That's language from Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10. God is going to accomplish the good pleasure of his will. And now we know it's accomplished for us in Jesus Christ the good pleasure of the will of God accomplished and the greatest and last deliverer of all time, the Son of God. 
The other correspondence I think that's picked up by Paul from Isaiah chapter 46 is the counsel of the purpose of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's the language of uh, the prophet Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10 about the coming of, of, of Cyrus. But now it's greater and more perfect fulfillment is in the Lord Jesus that in him he accomplishes all his good pleasure. And in him, he accomplishes all his purposes after the counsel of his will. The majesty of God purposing everything according to his own will. Paul is, perhaps as you know, in Ephesians chapter 1, praising God for his spiritual blessings to the church. And now we know why he's praising God, namely God is sovereign in effecting redemption and accomplishing all of his purposes in God the Son. He begins to list them. The two here are adoption and inheritance. That he adopts us as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention or the good pleasure of his will. We formerly belong to the devil but he adopts us through Christ unto himself. In our inheritance, he writes us into his will. We become heirs of the kingdom of God and all of the blessings of God, all of the majesty of the glory of God. We become heirs because of the goodness and the kind intention of the will of God. Linked, of course, to the fact and the reality that God is purposeful in effecting our deliverance in the last great single deliverer, Jesus Christ. Cyrus, in that regard, becomes an afterthought. He passes away. Who cares about Persia? Now Christ is everything because of who he is as the last final deliverer affecting deliverance for his people. Again, the greater fulfillment of Isaiah 46, the majesty of the sovereignty of God now breaking forth and descriptions about God and his provision in Jesus Christ. It includes, of course, uh, our coming into the family of God and the people of God. Let's look at another passage from Ephesians chapter 3 in verses 9 to 11. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which has for ages been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Something so utterly majestic about God who can purpose from eternity and accomplish everything that he wills and purposes. That nothing is left out, nothing is glossed over, Nothing is forgotten in light of him who decrees all things, the end from the beginning in Christ, the Savior of his church. Contextually, in Ephesians 3, the mystery is that Gentiles are included solely based on their identification with Christ. So what's the end state of Christ? 
Cyrus affects a measure of the glory of God and the return to Israel from Babylon, uh, but it's all the greater in what God does in Jesus Christ. The end state for Israel was salvation in beauty or glory, but it fades, of course, in their ultimate failure. And therefore, God raises up Jesus, who is the true Israel. I remind you of this. Church argues about this all of the time. Uh, simply want to look at one text. We argue uh, about who the church is, who Christ is. I would uh, commend to you the reality that Christ is the true Israel and that all who are in him are the true Israel. One text because of time, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Skips from Abraham to Christ because we are the people of God in him. We are by faith the sons of Abraham. And all of the promises of God adhere to us because we are in Christ. Well, again, in Ephesians 3, Paul begins, in light of the eternal purposes of God carried out in Jesus, to pray. And the content of that prayer is in verse 16, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. In Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 13, the prophet says that God will give you, give you glory. I think in many respects, the apostle Paul is alluding to Isaiah chapter 46, but he's far, far more transcendent because he skips over Cyrus and finds the eternal purposes of God to be set at the feet of Jesus, who's going to carry out the eternal purposes of God and give us according to the riches of the glory of God because of what he's done for us in Christ. And not only in Christ, but that he would strengthen us through power in his spirit in the inner man. The majesty of God providing of his church, the great doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He began our service that way, acknowledging the triune God because he is the only true God who purposed our salvation in eternity past, who brings it to pass in Jesus Christ, and he was affecting it even today. And the power of the Spirit strengthening us in the eternal person. Majesty of God, the eternal God, strengthening us through Father, Son, and Spirit. So that Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 46 in a much more intense and escalated way. That God's unalterable and determinative plan and purposes are in Christ. In Christ. Every other religion is therefore false. If it's not in Christ, then it's falsehood. And I would remind you again, as I have repeatedly, there are a number of false religions that proclaim Christ as a created being who eventually becomes God. That is so much folly. He's the creator of all things. He creates his church, and he gives his life a ransom, the one for the many, the sovereign Lord, the eternal purposes of God 
in Christ. Everything outside of Christ is absent the eternal purpose of God and therefore outside of salvation and God's sovereignty. And God is sovereignly working their destruction because life is only in Christ. I say that because much of the church in America is confused about who God is and what he does and how he does what he does. I think the prophet has just corrected us all that the eternal purposes and plan of God are always going to be fulfilled and they are fulfilled finally and intensely in Christ, God the Son, who redeems his people, who ransoms his people. The question, of course, for each of us as individuals is, has he ransomed you? Have you come to Christ? Have you identified yourself with Christ? Have you rejected every other identification in terms of all the religions of the world and all of the political correctness of the United States of America that is seemingly so popular today? Isaiah is sweeping that away. So is the Apostle Paul. It's in Christ. Salvation is nowhere else in no one else, only in him, by him, for him, and through him. And it is in Christ that he gives to us the riches of his power and glory and in the gift of the Spirit to strengthen us in the last great final exodus to heaven. Have you started the journey? The last great journey in Christ and no one else. Well, Isaiah the prophet has us remember the majesty of God. He commands us to listen to God and God's description of himself and his sovereignty. Not just as a position, but in power and in practice and in everything to affect our redemption. Again, I think it is key to worship. I think it's key to service. I think if you come to an understanding the clarity of what the scripture says about the majesty of God, you will set yourself at the last great exodus to worship the one true God and to serve him all of your life with all of the strength that you can so marshal in light of who God is and what he has done. The prophet has called us to remember the nature of God, the specifics of his power in affecting salvation in our deliverance and glory. Paul is simply telling us the greater fulfillment is in Christ. The last great only deliverer is Christ. There is no one else. There is hope only in him. And absent him, you are lost to wander like the waves of the sea, driven by every wind of doctrine. The great reminder of, I think, the apostle to the church is without hope and faith in Jesus Christ, all, all is lost forever. And may God in his grace and the majesty of the word of God remind us, clarify us, purify our understanding about who God is, namely God our Savior and God the Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen.